All right, now we're going to spend some time looking at the Bible. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, we've put Bibles under the chairs. We'd love for you to get in the habit of like opening up a paper Bible, old-fashioned, not to shame you if you're using your phone, that's fine. But if you don't have a Bible, we've got those for you, and you can even take that home. We'd, we'd love for you to have your own Bible. We'll be on page 987, I think, but it's First Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4. We're in a topical series right now called I Heart Clean. I Heart Clean. Uh, we told you last week you can get the t-shirt at the I Heart Clean website, iheartclean.com. The big idea is how the gospel challenges us to love our city. Not just clean if you're visiting, but any city God calls you to. God challenges us to love the place he's planted us for his glory through the gospel. So last week we talked specifically about loving your city. We looked at Jeremiah 29. This week we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to be talking about work. One of the ways that God helps us to love our city is by teaching us to work hard, to work for his glory. Um, And that can be hard for us because some of you have terrible jobs, right? And you're like, Dave, this will never work. So the goal is that I would convince you that God can work through you and that you can love your work and use your work to glorify him in this city, in this place that he has called you to. So we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Um, I mentioned this last week. We have a habit of doing what's called expository or expositional preaching. We're going to reset to this on June 19th. We're going to kick off a proverb series where we just work through books of the Bible. Um, But even when we're doing a topical series, we do sometimes holidays or in uh, kind of calendar transitions. Even when we're doing a topical series, we're going to try to pull the topic that we're talking about from the text. We're going to try to like not just make up stuff that I think is a good idea, but pull it from the text. So we're going to be primarily looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, but I'll reference some other texts as well that talk about work and how we should love our work and love others through our work. So before we read the text, um, I just want to introduce the idea of looking past the drudgery of a difficult job. Uh, There was a huge fire in London in 1666. It devastated the city, uh, destroyed a lot of major buildings. There was a great cathedral for the worship of God called St. Paul's Cathedral, and they decided they needed to rebuild it because it got burned down. So they were employing uh, the greatest architect of the time, Christopher Wren, to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral, to build a place where the love of Jesus could be broadcast to the world. And as Christopher Wren was engaging on the project, he noticed the different attitudes of the workers on the cathedral project. He noticed that there were three different bricklayers that seemed to have very different attitudes about their work when they were building this cathedral. The first bricklayer seemed to really be depressed, really caught up in the quagmire of the drudgery of his work, just miserable. He noticed a second bricklayer that seemed to be consistent but stoic, not really enjoying his work, not really depressed, just kind of getting the job done. And then he noticed a third bricklayer that seemed to be joyful, that seemed to be really happy and enjoying his work. And so he asked the different guys about what they were doing. He interviewed the first bricklayer. He's like, tell me, tell me about what you're doing. The bricklayer that was depressed was just like, I'm just doing this because this is the only option I have in life. I'm a bricklayer. I should have done, done more with my life. This is all I can do. He interviewed the next guy that seemed kind of stoic. And that guy had the attitude that he was a builder. He was building something, but basically he was feeding his family. He was there to feed his family. You know, he was stoic about it. Not joyful, but just getting the job done. The third guy interviewed him about what he's doing, the joyful guy. And he was like, tell me about what you're doing. He said, I'm a cathedral builder. 
I'm building a great cathedral to my God because my God loved me so much. He sent Jesus for me. And I want to build a place where that message will be broadcast and other people will hear about it. God loves me and I want other people to know the love of God in this beautiful cathedral. He had a a bigger vision for his work. His work wasn't just stacking bricks. His work was contributing to something bigger and impacting the world. Now, that's a dangerous story for me to introduce because a lot of you are like, all right, well, I'm not part of building a cathedral, so I guess I don't have to listen to this sermon, right? Well, no, even, even your work, if you're not stacking bricks in a cathedral, God, God tells us that if we belong to him, if we're followers of Jesus, that our work, even the most mundane work, is used by him to build a picture of who God is. And so even the most mundane work that you might be involved in, if you do it for God's glory, you're, you're shining a light on who God is and his character. Um, so let's read the text, see what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians, uh, and then we'll pray that God would teach us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to read 9 through 12, and then we're going to spend most of our time today in verse 11. That's the main one about work, but I'm going to read 9 through 12 to give us a little more context of how love and work are connected, okay? So starting in verse 9, oh, I need to put on my glasses. I haven't readied myself yet. Okay, here we go. Starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. The word in the text is to abound, to overflow. He's like, that's great. You know how to love each other, but I'm going to push you to keep going, to overflow in your love, verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul is connecting their work, their mundane work life, to their abounding in love. How do those things connect? The New Testament repeatedly says, as we work in our everyday work, our little lot in life, wherever God has placed us, that we're showing the world a picture of our great God, who is a worker, who created this world, who created us, and is redeeming the world that we live in. So let me pray that God would meet us here, that his spirit would help us to understand this, because this is a touchy subject. A lot of us are in jobs we don't like. It's going to be hard to understand how we can use that for God's glory, how we can be loved by him and love others through that work. So let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We believe that you speak to us in this word, that this, this word speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We thank you that you're present with us by your Holy Spirit, and we ask that your spirit would open our our minds and hearts to be listeners and to be learners. God, I pray for myself that you'd help me to uh, attend to what your word is saying and not be distracted by my own impressions or my own thoughts, but but to stick to you and what you have to say to us. Help us to receive it. Help us to walk in obedience to you, Um, not to win your love, but because you love us in Jesus. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, context, because we like to do this thing of working through the book of the Bible, and we're just going to hammer 1 Thessalonians and then move on next week. Context of 1 Thessalonians as two themes that come up again and again in this book are love and work, love and work. Paul gives this great appeal in the beginning of how much he loves them. He's like, you know how much I love you, and how do we know how much he loves them? Because he worked so hard. He was so diligent. He's weaving together love and work, love and work again and again. And so now this call is 
okay, I want you to keep loving each other and abounding in it, and I want you to work hard. And those things go together. They're not separate things. They're one thing. We tend to think of love in terms of affection, but throughout the Bible, love is an action that we perform. And part of our loving of our neighbors is working hard in the job that God has called us to. Remember, we looked last week at Jeremiah 29 and being called to a city that wasn't our choice. And we said, Acts 17 reminds us of this bigger picture that God decides where we will live, what we will do. It was God's idea that you have the intelligence that you have, you have the strengths that you have, you have the gifts that you have. You were born into the family you were born into, into the country and the time and the place. You can be frustrated with God about that, but it's God's plan. And as we look at the scriptures, we see more and more that God has a good idea in mind when he did that. We begin to come to terms with his plan. So part of that is, is working hard. And so as we move through really just primarily verse 11, we'll look at the others for context, but primarily verse 11, we see three things. It's little bullet points you'll see in that one verse that we're called to work quietly, to do your work, and to work hard, okay? Work quietly, do your work, our own, pay attention to our own business, and then finally to work hard. And as we look at this, remember, we don't work to get God's love. We work because we got God's love, right? I, I quoted 1 John 4.19 last week. My wife and I put that in our wedding rings to help us figure out how to be married. It's working so far, 29 years. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us, right? Translate that to work. We work because he did all the work for us. He worked to save us, right? So we're working in response to what Jesus has done for us. So first of all, we work quietly. We work quietly. Now remember context in 1 Corinthians. We've been studying 1 Corinthians. It's a good thing to be quiet sometimes, right? And this is a little tough for me, right? Because I talk a lot for a living. Sometimes it's good to just be quiet. Sometimes it's good to listen. You've heard the old phrase, you have two ears and one mouth. So that means you need to listen twice as much as you speak, right? Proverbs is where we're headed next. We're going to be in Proverbs starting June 19. That comes up again and again. Work and words are both themes of Proverbs. And it's good to be quiet and to show what you believe and what you think through your actions. Proverbs 14.23 says, There's profit in all hard work, but endless talk leads only to poverty. Endless talk leads only to poverty. If you've ever been a manager or you've run a business, there are two kinds of Christians that might be vocal about their Christianity. One is going to spend a lot of time talking about it. And there's this other kind of Christian that's going to do the best job they possibly can for you. Which one do you want to work for you? Which one do you want to hire, right? It's the second one. You don't want the Christian that's always talking about it. Now, we've got to be careful. We have a religion that, that requires us to speak up about Jesus, right? But the idea that comes out again and again in the New Testament is I don't boast about me. I boast about Jesus, right? And one of the ways I boast about Jesus is by working hard, by sometimes just shutting my mouth and getting stuff done, serving people, okay? And so that's what he's calling us to. He says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Aspire to live quietly. Aspire to be quiet. He's given a bigger picture of work here. So I've said work quietly. He says aspire to live quietly. What does it look like to aspire 
to be quiet. It's a really interesting play on words because the word aspire is kind of an honor word. Other translations will say, make it your ambition, right? So ambition, I've got great ambition, right? I aspire to great things. I have ambition for great things. It's kind of a play on words. I wrote down a couple of different ways we could say this. These are my translations to help you feel the kind of the contrast here or the, the play on words. Aspire to small aspirations. Do you like that? That's one way of saying it. Or you could say it this way. Be ambitious to not be overly ambitious. It's another way to say it. Finally, make your stage a small, quiet life. That's what Paul is calling us to. He's saying that actually makes an impact. Like living your little part well, doing it for the glory of God, impacts people eternally for the kingdom. And we got to be careful, right? There's this famous St. Francis of Assisi quote that's like, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words, right? I just got to be clear, you're not actually preaching the gospel unless you say Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, right? Like you have to say something to preach the gospel, but it's getting at a point of your actions make your words credible, right? So if you work hard, work hard, work hard, then you can share one sentence that is credible, But if you share a hundred sentences but aren't working quietly, those sentences aren't credible. Like nobody believes you, right? We have to earn the right to be heard. Uh, It's talked about in James. The letter of James in the New Testament says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. That goes back to the two ears and, and one mouth. And some of us have especially large ears, right? So maybe the Lord's trying to tell me something here. There's another one farther down in James, the same section, where it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I mentioned this one last week. So be doers, not just hearers. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. And so this is a challenge that he gives us. Another cross-reference is in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 is talking about how the church should be organized and how we should pray for all kinds of people. God wants all kinds of people to be saved. We should even pray for important people, even though sometimes they're corrupt and mean. We should pray for them anyway, right? Pray for leaders, pray for kings, senators, presidents, these kinds of people. We should always be praying for all kinds of people. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 2, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray that we could lead a peaceful, quiet life. I don't know about you, but a lot of modern people are praying that we could be more famous, right? We're praying like, Lord, let me lead a a loud, famous life. And he's saying, pray that you could lead a quiet, godly, peaceful life. There's real fruit in this. One of my favorite illustrations of this is from a movie I watched a couple of years ago called A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life. Anybody seen this? A Terrence Malick film? My wife's seen it. She watched it with me. Thanks, babe. Uh, a Hidden Light, fantastic movie. It's kind of an art film, so if, if you are addicted, you only watch Marvel movies, it might be hard for you. Um, but I encourage you to try it, because that's kind of who I am. I'm kind of a comic book guy, but I, I took the stretch. My, my kids are artists, and they challenged me to you know this artistic stuff. It's a really beautiful movie by Terrence Malick. So it's about a farmer in Germany, and he happens to be a farmer in Germany during World War II. And so he's conscripted into the army and he starts to wrestle with his conscience as a follower of Jesus that he can't swear allegiance to Hitler, even though he knows that might mean he's going to lose everything. And the whole study of the film is just kind of showing the beautiful simplicity of his life, his beautiful, simple faithfulness to Jesus, and repeatedly lawyers, um, prison guards, 
people that are torturing him, even priests are telling him, just give in. Just do the thing they're asking you to do. Just swear your allegiance to Hitler. Why? Because nobody's even going to know about your story. You think you're being so brave in resisting this? No one's even going to know. That's said again and again. It's the great irony of the story, right? Because then later in history, we found letters. This is a true story that's being told in film to the whole world about this hidden life of faithfulness, this quiet life of obedience to Jesus, and it impacts people like me and you, people that see that and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus even if it means death. I'm going to obey him no matter what. That's what he's calling us to. It's a beautiful picture of this. So how do we do this in today's world? Number one, just be aware of the world we live in, right? We live in a marketing world, a social media world, a broadcasting world. Those things aren't bad, but they just definitely pull us, right? There's a current pulling us towards fame and being known and sending our message out to everybody. Again, it's not bad. We pump social social media stuff out. We want people to know about the gospel, right? But we have to kind of collect ourselves and say, but my ordinary, daily, quiet obedience is the meat of it all, right? That's what matters. I can talk to people about things online. I can do marketing, right? I had a friend that owned a marketing company said, really the best marketing is just speaking the truth, right? (laughs) The best marketing is not creating some new identity, but it's speaking the truth about your business or about your enterprise, So think about that when you think about your engagement in social media. It's about communicating real things, not fake things. Don't get caught up in trying to say something that's that's not actually reality. And also recognize that this kind of social media talking is also a pull towards gossip. To pull towards commenting on things that aren't our place to comment on. The New Testament again and again challenges us not to be gossips. Um, There are a lot of different definitions for gossip. One is you're talking about other people's stuff that you're really not in charge of, right? Like, I'm not in charge of this person, but I'm judging and talking about them. It's one way to define gossip. We should avoid that. Another way to think about it is you're saying something to one person that you wouldn't say to this other person's face. That's another definition of gossip. So avoid that, right? Be quiet. Again, First Corinthians, the series we were in before, was like, it's good to be quiet. It's good to hold your mouth sometimes. It's good to hold your tongue and be silent sometimes. Here's a prayer that we could pray, Lord, show me the areas I'm tempted to greatness and fame. And then show me, Lord, how I can enjoy working faithfully and quietly without any recognition. Show me where I need to obey you. Like, what's the, what's the job you have for me? One of the ways we like to say this is like, what's that next right thing you have for me to do, Lord? Show me that. There's a, everything we could do, right? Change the world, do everything all the time, fix everybody, save everybody. What's, what's the next thing, the quiet Obedient thing that you want me to do next. Pray and then do that thing he shows you, right? In quietness, without fame, without recognition. And then one more thing, we'll move on. Lord, show me the people that I need to listen to more. Who are those people? There's people that God's placed around you. People that I'll never meet. Who does God want you to listen to more? Who does God want me to listen to more? What does it look like for us to work quietly and and listen more. A book I read on pastoring, which I I think applies to pastors and non-pastors, by a guy named Zach Eswine. It's called Imperfect Pastor. And he says this, God has given you a handful of persons whom you are meant to love. Don't look over the shoulders of those that are right in front of you. Very convicting. 
Because, you know, pastor, you know, we, we gather as a crowd and I want to meet everybody. So I'm often like shaking your hand and like looking at the next person behind you. Like, okay, focus, focus. But that, again, can happen to any of us. We can often be thinking about the next thing instead of the thing right in front of us. Or the next person instead of the person right in front of us. So Lord, help me to be faithful where you've planted me to work quietly. The, the next bullet point in Paul's verse 11 is then, and mind your own affairs. So aspire to live quietly and aspire to mind your own affairs. How do we like to say mind your own affairs? Mind your business, right? I'm saying here, do your work because I got to have work in every point, okay? Do your work. Do the work that God has called you to. An illustration of this would be staying in your lane. I ran track a uh, hundred years ago when I was in high school. I was never great at it. It's just a thing I did. So the illustration works for me. It's something I can imagine. You'd get disqualified if I ran into somebody else's lane, right? If I wanted to win the race, which only happened once in my life, if I wanted to win that race, I'd just stay in my lane, right? If I stepped into their lane, knocked them over, I might feel like, yeah, I beat him, but not really according to the rules of the race, right? Like I have to stay in my lane. I was talking to one of our pastors who was in the army before, and he's like, you know, and it has another connotation for military people. We use that term a lot, stay in your lane. It doesn't just mean you'll be disqualified, but you could get shot, right? (laughs) If you step out of line, stay in order. There's a word for disorderliness, for getting out of your lane, for not paying attention to your work. And the word is idle. It's a New Testament word. We don't use it a lot in our modern language. Um, Another translation of it is busybody. We use that word a little bit more in modern English. So Paul, in his second letter to Thessalonians, talks a lot about idleness. It comes up in 1 Thessalonians 2. That's part of why we're there. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Part of the tradition at its core was trusting Jesus and obeying the moral commands of Jesus. That's the foundation of the apostolic tradition. A lot of people get caught up in this and they get all distracted about how important tradition is and, you know, like what color hat we wear and our order of service. The foundation of New Testament tradition is Jesus, okay? Let me just clarify that. But part of that unfolding of New Testament tradition is obeying the moral commands of Jesus. And part of the moral commands of Jesus is that we would obey him and work hard and be about our own business, not be idle, not goof off, not be busybodies. We have to be really careful about this, right? Because we have a whole culture that celebrates idleness. Think about one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. I don't want to pick on it too much because it's brought me a lot of laughter, but The Office If any of you have ever seen it, I can't recommend it from a stage because it's kind of gross. But the core of the the show is it's about people working in a place where the whole goal is to not work. I mean, right? That's kind of it, right? And it's like a, a tribute to our modern American view of work. The goal of a good job is to not have to work. And that's in contrast to the biblical goal of work. The goal biblically, is that we would actually work, right? Like that's the goal. We'd do our work. We'd stay in our lane. We'd mind our own affairs. We'd mind our business. We'd pay attention. We'd care. We'd attend to what we've been given to do, the lot that we've been given. So avoid anybody that's walking in idleness. That's hard to do in our culture, right? Because a lot of us are idle. He goes on. He says, you yourself know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Paul said, part of being a true teacher of the gospel is being a hard worker. A mark, guys, of a false teacher is someone that doesn't work hard. So 
God calls many Colleen residents to other cities. It's a transient city. You'll often find other churches. Um, look for teachers, elders, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders that work hard, that are, that are a model for you to follow, that mind their own business, that are not idle. He goes on, Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So the New Testament is all about mercy. Helping the broken, helping the widow, helping the foreigner, helping the outsider. We're going to help resettle an Afghan family. We're all about that. We're all about mercy. But there's a transition to work and independence that's built into that. It's a both and. It's not, we want you to work hard so we'll never show mercy. And it's not, we'll show mercy so we don't care if you work hard. It's both. We're going to show you mercy and try to help you to, to work hard. And he's bringing that out here. People aren't willing to work. Don't let them eat. Don't give them food. Like, stop. At some point, you've got to cut it off and, and help them transition to independence and hard work. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy body. So Paul's condemning this again and again, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Do your own work. Don't be obsessed with other people's work. Don't be a busy body, but do your own work. Another way that this is said is in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3, it's a really hard section because this is for people that have a, a bad boss, I would say, or a difficult work environment because it's for the bond servant. The bond servant was like a slave. It's not the same way as we practice slavery because you could get your freedom if you were a bond servant, right? So Roman law and Jewish law was generally much better than the way America, you know, practiced that. So we always have to say that because there were some Christians that justified slavery in America by saying, hey, it's all fine in the Bible. It was a different system, right? Uh, so the system in the Bible was more like uh, being on a military contract, that's a bonded servant, right? You belong to the military for a certain, certain number of years. And so sometimes you're in a spot, you're like, man, I'm miserable. I don't want to do this anymore. But I got, I got three more years, right? And Paul says, even when you're in that spot where you, you feel like a slave and you can't get out of it, work heartily as if you're working for the Lord. Your boss may be a jerk, but work, work for the Lord. Do your work for the Lord. There's something spiritual about work, even when you have a bad boss, and I have to add to this, 1 Corinthians 7, there's a caveat there that says, if you are in a miserable job, because some of you are, and some of you are like, Dave, you do not understand how miserable I am. First of all, we have a God that you can tell any of your problems to. God, help me, right? The Psalms are full of how long, O Lord, when, how long until you save me out of this pit I'm in? So cry out to the Lord. But 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you are a bonded servant and you got the option of going free, of course go free. Of course. Take the better option, right? If you're in a terrible job and you have an option to work a better job for the glory of Jesus and the joy of all people, take that job, right? But what Paul tries to clarify in 1 Corinthians 7 is just don't think that that will make you into a better follower of Jesus. Some of the deepest and sweetest lessons we learn on how to follow Jesus are in difficult circumstances. So that's what Paul really hammers home in 1 Corinthians 7. He's like, well, of course, if you can get a better job, get a better job. But just remember that God can do incredible things in a bad job with a bad boss in a bad place. Be faithful where you are. Love Jesus despite your circumstances. Don't let those circumstances keep you from obeying Jesus. So how do we, how do, we do this, right? I mean, just do your work, right? <laughs> Here's some tips to stay in your lane, to do your own work well, uh, show up, okay? 
Show up. Uh, what's another thing? Do the thing your boss has asked you to do. Finish your checklist. That's another good piece of advice. I can't believe I'm saying this, but this is where we are in culture. Uh, do your job with excellence. Do it well. Don't aim for the minimum and say, what do I need to do to get by, right? Not like the office sitcom, but, but what do I need to do to really honor God and help my, my co-employees and my boss? What, what does that look like to serve them and help them to get ahead, to help our, our organization to succeed? And then finally, here's a good one, smile. Try smiling. Try acting like God loves you and letting that leak through in your work and in your job. And then one more little note that I thought was helpful. Uh, One of our ministry directors was talking through the text with me this week. She was saying, man, I'm really good at staying in my lane. I'm really good about doing my work, but sometimes I get so caught up in my work, I don't pay attention to anybody else, right? I obsess over my work. And so she was saying, you might remind people that if you're like that, you might just look up sometimes, look out for other people too, right? Show compassion to those around you. In the gospel, because Jesus has accomplished the work of dying for our sins, giving us resurrection life, that frees us up to do two things, right? On the one hand, it frees us up to work joyfully, even when we don't want to, because we know that Jesus loves us. It also frees us up to rest, to know that doing my work 24-7 is not what saves me. So the Christian life is living between those two things. We mentioned this before, but we're called to six days of work, one day of rest, right? We're called to a balance there. And so God calls you to work and God calls you to rest. And you don't rest all the time trying to seek salvation in your rest. You don't work all the time trying to seek salvation in your work. But you can work for the glory of God because Jesus has worked for you. Okay, last point, work hard. Work hard. So again, verse 11, first of all, aspire to live quietly. That was the first thing. And mind your own affairs. Final thing, and work with your hands as we instructed you. Work with your hands. So two things. There's real benefit to working physically. God's made us to be physical beings. There's real benefit to that. We used to tell our kids when they were little, you have to play sports because we don't have a farm, okay? And the human body is made to exercise, right? So we weren't obsessed with sports. We weren't doing sports so that they could like, you know, win status in society. We just wanted them to be physically capable human beings because God's made our bodies to work. So know that. So here's the application. If you do non-physical work, make sure you move your body, okay? Our bodies are made to work physically. So that's a weird thing in the day and age we live in because it's, it's disconnected now. You can do work, quote unquote, without physically doing work. And it's very confusing. So if you do mental work, make sure you're doing physical work too or your body's just gonna keel over and die, okay? Now, another aside is we all have different limitations, Some of you have physical limitations that make it hard for you to do physical work. Granted, you know your limitations better than I do. I'm just saying we always want to kind of push ourselves to be physically engaged. It's good for us. More and more research showing that like just sitting in chairs is one of the most unhealthy thing in the world. Have y'all seen that? It's crazy. Like you're sitting in chairs right now. Sorry about that. But like apparently it's just not good for you, you know? Stand up as much as you can at work. I do that a lot now. I'll type standing up instead of sitting all the time in my chair. I do a lot of mental work, a lot of typing and writing and studying. So it's good for us to be physically engaged. It's just a good part of this balance of life. But I also want to press it metaphorically to just work hard. I think that's the main thing he's saying. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty would be a way that we would speak that metaphorically, right? 
you know that getting your hands dirty is not always literal. Sometimes it means being willing to get involved in something messy, complicated, hard. And the New Testament, not the New Testament, the Old Testament starts off with a picture of we have a God that gets his hands dirty. It's a beautiful vision. And it's a polemic against all the other gods. So polemic is a fancy word for like a debate. So Moses writes Genesis as a debate with every other religion. Because every other religion at the time said the gods are too important to get their hands dirty. Only slaves get their hands dirty. But elite people and the gods, they don't dig in the dirt. They don't farm. They don't do manual labor. They're too important for that. And then we get this picture in Genesis 2 of God creating the world. And it starts off with him speaking things into being. That's true. But then the crown of creation is him making humanity. And how does he make humanity? He digs literally in the dirt. He forms us out of the dust. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And then what did God do? Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden. So we've got him like a potter with clay shaping humans out of mud. And then we've got him going right back to the dirt to plant a garden. There he put the man he had formed. Genesis 2.15 then says this. Then to reflect God's image, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God has made us to work hard. God works hard. God is our model. We want to be like God. God gets his hands dirty. God digs in the dirt. God made us to work and keep the garden. And this is before sin enters in. The side of sin that we live in is sin has broken everything. Sin has made our work hard. Thorns and thistles, pain and childbearing. That's part of the curse in Genesis 3. But please hear me. Work was part of God's perfect design in Eden before sin ever came into the picture. God has made us to work. Work is good. Is it broken? Yes. Are there some terrible things about your job? Yes. I've never even been to some of your jobs. I know there are, right? Because all work is cursed. But all childbearing is cursed as well. All everything is cursed. All relationships are cursed, right? That doesn't mean we give up on everything and just sit in the corner waiting for Jesus to come back. Because Jesus has saved us and forgiven us and given us his resurrection life, we follow him and we, we work and we raise kids and we plant trees and we go to our jobs and we try to serve our neighbors and we make culture and make music. We do these things for God's glory because he's redeemed us and is redeeming us. He is redeeming the world. I grabbed a picture of a potter with clay because that's another way that this language is carried throughout the, the rest of the Bible. We're told again and again, not only is the God the one who, who formed man out of the mud, planted a garden, and then put man into the garden to keep working that dirt. But he's like a potter, and we're like clay, and he's forming us. We're like art pieces, right? And he's shaping us, and he's crafting us, and he's getting his hands dirty. We also want to get our hands dirty. We also want to work hard. As we work hard, that glorifies God. That shows what God is like. Now, sometimes we get weary because there is a curse, right? And so we can take encouragement that God is finishing what he started by taking our sin on the cross, by giving us resurrection power, by conquering sin and death. 
And so Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a famous preacher from the 1800s. A friend sent me this quote this week from his uh, morning and evening daily devotion. It's a great devotion written in the 1800s. This is a, uh, a little quote about work. He's talking about people that want to serve God but get tired, right? Like, we want to do what's right. The, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak, right? No, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's describing it here. He says, although he wants to serve his master here, he finds his strength unequal to his zeal, right? Like, I can't keep up with everything I wish I could do. His constant cry is, help me to serve you, God. I'm not tired of the work, but I grow weary in the work. He's saying, I'm not tired of the idea of working, Lord. I want to work. I want to serve you, but I'm so weary. I'm so tired. Many of you, you're sick. You're broken. You're aching. You're in pain. He says, I'm not tired of the work, but I get weary as I go along. Help me, God. And Spurgeon says this, the hot day of weariness does not last forever. The sun is nearing the horizon and it will rise again on a brighter day in a land where the inhabitants serve God day and night and yet at the same time rest from their labors. Here where we live, rest is partial, but there it's perfect. Here the Christian always has more to do, but there everyone is at rest. They've reached the summit of the mountain. They've embraced their God. They can't go any higher. He says, oh, tired worker, think of when you'll be able to rest forever. Can you fathom it? Here, my best joys are mortal. The most beautiful flowers fade. The vats of the best wine are eventually drained to their dregs. The sweetest birds fall from the sky. But there, everything is immortal. Spurgeon goes on, much longer quote, and he's painting a picture of a place where we're entering into the permanent forever rest of God. But the picture is we're actually working in eternity. Like again and again, the picture of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, or we're actually working and resting. Like we're working and resting simultaneously. We're working for God's glory and we're no longer weary and we're resting in God's arms because he's made all things right. It's a beautiful thing that it's hard for us to even envision. So here's an application for this. We have a lot of folks uh, that are medically retired, uh, that are actually retired from a full career. Uh, Some of you on particular kinds of disability and different kinds of limitations. What I want to encourage you towards is taking whatever next step you can take. We all have different limitations, right? Um, We can't all work the same. And your job is not to compare yourself to other people's work habits. Your job is to be faithful with what God has given you. If you're stronger, do more. If you're smarter, do more. If you're weaker, do less, right? You do what you can do, but be faithful and work hard with what God has given you. And let me clarify this about retirement because I think we've so joined money with work that we're kind of mixed up about it. God wants you to work and be productive whether you get paid or not. Now, let me add to that. Um, if you're working a job and not getting paid and you can't feed your family, okay, find a new job where they'll pay you, right? Let me, let me be clear about that. But, but let me re-say it this way. Um, you might have financially earned retirement. Like you might be there where you've earned through your years of work, I don't need to work anymore for a paycheck. But you still need to work. The question is what kind of work? If you don't need a paycheck anymore, you've got this great freedom now, which can be paralyzing and could encourage you to just sit and drink lemonade for the rest of your life. But God has not made us for that. 
God wants you to work. Now, again, you may have physical limitations. As we get older, we have to work less, right? That's totally fine. Don't compare yourself to other people. Just say, Lord, what do you have for me to do now? I don't have to work for a paycheck anymore. What work do I have? You're never morally exempt from work. You might be financially exempt from needing to work in the same way for a paycheck, but you're not morally exempt from work. Does that make sense? God's made us to work. As we get older, it may be less and less, but he's, he's made us to work for his the glory and for other human beings, good. So we'll end with this clear text in Ephesians 2.8 on working hard because as we press hard work, we might be tempted to think our hard work is what wins us God's favor. And I've already said this, but it bears repeating. I have to say it again because we always drift from the gospel. We're not working to get God to love us. We're working because he already loves us. So Ephesians 2.8-10 says, by grace, it's free, by grace, you've been saved through faith by trusting him. This is not your doing. It's not something you did. It's something Jesus did. It says it's the gift of God, not a result of works, okay? So everything I'm saying today is not going to win you God's love or approval. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. New Testament says again and again, we don't boast in our work. We boast in the work of Jesus. Paul goes on and says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So the old faith and works proposition, are we saved by works? No, we're saved for works. We're saved by the work of Jesus to do good works. He wants us to work hard. He wants us to serve others in the mundane things of an ordinary job and in the wonderful Christian-y things of working in our nursery, right? Yeah, we need more of you to work in our nursery. But in all of these things, we work not to win God's affection, but because we've already won his affection in Jesus. Jesus loved you so much, he thought you were worth it to die on a cross for your sins, to rise from the dead and conquer sin and death once and for all to win you into his family and invite you into his work. And so verse 12 tells us that we do all this work so that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So don't be overly dependent on each other, right? When you can work hard and take care of your own needs, don't be leaning on others and dragging them down. Be independent, that's a good thing. And also walk properly before outsiders. The picture here is that when we really love our jobs and work hard, we're like building this cathedral where people get a picture of who God is and what he's like. And Second Peter 2 makes it very clear that really we're not building the cathedral but God is building the cathedral. He says, we are living stones built into a spiritual house. And as we trust Jesus and obey Jesus, we begin to be fitted together as bricks in this great cathedral to God called the church, where people see people that are not perfect, but stumbling forward, trusting Jesus, honoring him, and he's reflected in our lives. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in communion. God, thank you that you love us. You gave us your son, Jesus. We know that you love us, but we drift and forget. So remind us every day, help us remember your love, your great work that you performed for us through your death and resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you finished your work and now you're seated at the right hand of God, as Hebrews tells us. Help us to work, again, not to win your love, but because of your love. Help us to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.